Welcome to Life After CISO, where we'll talk about your next play as a successful technology executive and steps you can take now to prepare for the journey. Welcome back to the Life After CISO podcast. Today, I got a special guest with me. I got Sunil Yu here. Hey, good to be here. Great to have you, Sunil. So, so one of the things I'm going to talk about is your brand almost of the cyber defense matrix. If people associate that with you, and that, that's a good thing. A lot of people use that model. I think I can call it a model. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, and, and we'll talk about, and we're not going to, there's plenty of material on, for people to learn about it and actually use it. And it's super helpful. But what I love is to me, that reflects, like, I think you're a ontological person after that. Like, I, I, I think you're the type of person that wants to classify things. Mm-hmm. Is that accurate? <laughs> yeah. And part of the challenge that I had, the reason why I had to come up with this classification system is because. Uh, when I was at Bank of America, I, I encountered all these vendors that seemed to defy classification. And because they defy classification, especially in the context of what they claim to do, which is everything, if everyone claims to do everything, then they then you don't know anything. You know nothing about what they really do. And so having some sort of systematic way to classify the things that we do in cybersecurity and what these vendors do in relation to that was, I think, an essential part of uh, why I created the matrix. So Sunil, since this is life after CISO, we talk a lot about retirement. So we talk about why you should retire and then all the different stuff that you can do after there. And I thought in my first episode that I framed out all the options. I think I said uh, board work, advisory mm-hmm. work, teaching, angel investing. Uh, okay, you just knocked off. Anyway, yes. <laughs> so so I, I named a number of things. I'm sure I missed out on a lot of stuff like, like kite surfing or whatever it would be. <laughs> But the one that seems kind of obvious now is going back to work. And I think that's a, a, a real one, either because people planned, hey, I'm just taking a while and I'm going to go yeah. back. Or if they change their minds, I'm never going to work again. And then later they do either for economic reasons or because they miss it and they really enjoy it. Right. So I love having you on right now because you're a CISO today. Right. And you had a hiatus where you were definitely not a security practitioner. Can you talk a little bit about that whole process? Sure. Yeah. So I think retirement certainly is, in some respects, a state of mind. And the perspective I would offer here is that uh, I had a friend of mine told me a long time ago, you should try to retire multiple times in your life. I'm like, what? What does that mean? Most people look at retirement as you work hard through a certain period of time, and then you retire towards the end of your life. And towards that end of your life, you're now just enjoying life and so on and so forth. But in some respects, it's actually perhaps more productive if you retire multiple times throughout your life where you take a meaningful break in between jobs. And that meaningful break in between jobs, where as long, this of course presumes that you're, you have the financial ability to do so, which unfortunately not everyone does. But if you do, then to take a job or to rather take a break to refresh, to renew, and really to rethink your assumptions and to plan for the next job that you think you'll do is how I started to think about retirement. So in effect, I could say I've retired actually now multiple times. Uh, One time just to write a book or attempt to write a book. So that was what you had in mind. But saying that you're only working on writing a book is putting a lot of pressure on yourself. Sure. Yeah. And, And I should say retirement is not stopping work. It's stopping being, I guess, paid for work. But there, uh, I'll, yeah, I'll tell yeah. that story a little later too. There was a <laughs> okay. point where 
I felt like I was retired and I was getting paid, which is great, right? <laughs> but you don't feel like you're compelled to have to work for money, which then actually frees you to do things that you really enjoy, for which people actually are willing to still pay you if you actually are good at what you enjoy doing. And I think it prepares you for this next stage of life where you can reinvent yourself. And that reinvention can turn into things like board seats or it can turn into you know, being an author or a speaker or teaching, which I've had the luxury of being able to do all those things, of being an investor, of being on a board, of teaching and all these other sort of things. And I think at each of those times, I've been able to, again, reinvent myself to say, okay, what do I want to do now in this new phase of life after having done retirement? And that retirement hasn't always lasted a year. Oftentimes, I'm, I'm pulled back sooner than that. But I think the, the mindset of retiring multiple times throughout your life is something that uh, I've tried to embody. So you're a CISO now. So mm-hmm. obviously, there was some kind of discussion mm-hmm. that led to that. And there's a whole process you look at now. But would you have said that you know, right after you left your last job, if that same opportunity had presented itself, that you would have recoiled immediately and said, no, 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 I, I'm absolutely not interested, but that the timing had to be right or that you had to evolve emotionally or something like that before it came? Well, actually, so when I joined Jupiter One as our CISO, I wrote a blog and the blog said, why I don't want to be a CISO. So um, I can relate to that. Yeah. yeah, So essentially, I had no interest in actually being a CISO because it's sort of like, well, in a retirement job or when you're retired, do you really want to keep fighting fires? Do you really want to keep up at night? So on and so on. And of course, the answer is no. You want to be able to relax and to rethink things in a different way. So that's why I wasn't interested. But the perspective I have, though, is that I still want to learn. I want to learn new things and I want to continue to create. But uh, the type of things that I'm pretty sure, at least right now, I wouldn't want to go into a uh, large corporation as their CISO having to deal with the fires that we constantly have to deal with. I mean, how horrible of a job would it be if you joined and all of a sudden you had Lock4J you have to deal with, right? Mm-hmm. That's just stressful and no one really wants that. So I, I think my perspective was, I look at the opportunity and say, what can I learn from it? So after I left Bank of America, I went to venture capital for a year because there were things I wanted to learn. I, I, there were things I wanted to test out as well as a theory. Um, and the theory is also embodied in the cyber defense matrix. The cyber defense matrix has a way that I can use I was using the cyber defense matrix as a way to pattern match and discover gaps in the market. From an investor standpoint. From an investor standpoint. And and let me pull in a thread for a second there. So when you jumped right into VC, chances are you had kind of cultivated those relationships and that kind of thing over time. Is that right? That's right. Yeah. Yeah. Largely because uh, in my role at Bank of America, I had the opportunity to... um, to see all these startups and try to understand what they do. And, and, so, and, and the investors as well, I imagine you, you, you dealt with VCs as well. Yeah, yeah. Because they're, they're always asking, like, what are the gaps? What are the challenges? Right. And so on. So it, it made for a natural intersection of interests. Right. So, so that was, I'm not going to say first because I don't know the whole story, but that was a retirement, if you will. It was. My life in VC uh, was one of the least stressful jobs I've ever had. So, because it was really an opportunity for me to think bigger and broader and to explore with other entrepreneurs around the problem space that we're in. And that's, that's very fun. I thoroughly enjoyed that time. It may, maybe it may create stress for others, but for me, that's very much something that uh, I was very passionate about and felt that I had a lot to offer. I was delighted when the partners were willing to make actual investment decisions based on the 
the crazy ideas that I had. So, yeah. Oh, that's awesome. Yeah. And so when you did that, you were a, a, a full time or that was your main mm-hmm. gig, yeah. so to speak. Yeah, it was. It was my full time gig, which, again, was really just a matter of spending lots of time with entrepreneurs to talk through ideas and problems and approaches. So that, that was just fun. I, I learned a lot through that uh, period of retirement. <laughs> right. So and when you agreed to be a CISO, maybe the CISO you are today, for example, was that a matter of it was the right opportunity at the right time at the right place? Or do you was there also some like where it gives you freedom and allows you to continue exploring things that just being the CISO of Bank of America or something like that would have restricted you from doing? Yeah. One of the things that emerged with the cyber defense matrix itself is that it started off from practice, then it became more theory. And what I wanted to do was to be able to take that theory and see if I can actually put it back to practice. So I can have all these use cases of the cyber defense matrix, but at the end of the day, if I can't demonstrate myself that I can put it to practice, then what good is it? So, so that was one of the impetuses for joining, coming in as a CISO, to have the opportunity to reframe and restructure yeah. the organization in the way that I would like to do so. Now, that's a little harder to do in a well-established organization because you have to break a lot of molds and, and change a lot of things up. Obviously, in a startup, it's much easier. And so that was uh, one of the attractions. Other general attraction of uh, Jupiter One itself is that the thinking that we have around the nature of the product and what it's supposed to do actually fits nicely in this broad framing view that I have of the cyber defense matrix, especially in terms of like what type of assets that we're trying to address. And uh, most people, when they say asset management, they think just device-oriented stuff. Right. Whereas I think of it across the five asset classes that are represented in the cyber defense matrix, you know, devices, applications, networks, data, and users. And uh, a singular focus, a narrow framing focus on just one of those, unfortunately, will result in you probably getting compromised because you could have the most secure server with uh, a bug-free application on a fully segmented network with fully encrypted data. But if you have an administrator that clicks on phishing emails all the time, all those things are exposed. And to understand that in a, in a relational way is what, uh, what Jupyter One does, but is also how I look at the cyber defense matrix as a whole. So on that note, getting back to my thesis that a lot of people, a lot of cybersecurity practitioners, and especially CISOs, spend too much time on tools Mm -hmm. and on technology. I'll use an example. So I I just did a a review consulting-wise, a security assessment for a company. The key risk, right? The whole thing was implementing a risk register. There was a lot of understanding of a program. And and I basically said, here's a risk register. That's the first thing that you need kind of done, right? But let me note some anecdotal observations I had about your security while I'm in there and precede it with some top risks. And there are things like turn on MFA on these banking accounts or treasury accounts, um, make there be MFA on this website design program because site defacement was a high priority for them, or move things out of on-prem so you don't have to have a VPN. So I, I, in other words, so I'll use a good example. They had remote RDP into their local office from the internet. And I didn't say you need a $100,000 fancy RDP gateway that's going to integrate with Okta and all this kind of stuff. I just say you need to turn the thing off. So all that to say, from the mindset of turn it off, change your configuration, educate these people, set up a process to recertify accounts every six months, all those free things, mm-hmm. how do they fit into the cyber defense matrix? Yeah, actually, so this was uh, this was kind of cool. And uh, given where we are in Atlanta, I'll pick um, a somewhat relevant example. A good friend of mine, uh, Adrian Sanabria, he did this analysis using the cyber defense matrix to look at control failures of a major Atlanta-based company. 
that goes by the name of Equifax. Anyway, there were 39 some control failures that were described in many different public reports. And he went through and systematically mapped them to the cyber defense matrix, which I loved, which was great. Mm -hmm. Then I worked with him to take it to the next step, which is to say, which of these are technology failures versus people failures versus process failures? And it turns out that there is, I mean, each of the control failures had that kind of mapping. Now, it turned out most of the uh, failures did were technology-oriented, but there were clearly some people and process-oriented failures that, people sh- that, that we need to also pay attention to as well. Yeah. Well, so let me throw out my c- contrarian take on this whole thing with the purpose of, of having you tell me if and when and where it would fit into the CDM. So my analysis when I immediately saw that was, why the hell were you encrypting on the LAN? Why were you re-encrypting? I mean, from my point of view, it's a, another mouth to feed when you create that process of synchronizing keys. Yeah. You're trying to hide the data on a local area network segment where the only people who have access to it almost certainly also have access to turn off the decryption, run TCP dump on the load balancer, et cetera. And, I, and the reason I have a little bit of angst about it is that I would guess it was all born of this encryption mania on the reg side mm. and mm. box ticking. So I would say that the proper control was remove encryption on the internal interface. Uh, which and then, boom, been, you're okay. Yeah, that, that would have been actually interesting. So the uh, way that this manifests in the cyber defense matrix, it can manifest in a couple of different ways. But uh, my initial thought on that is this notion of business constraints and mm. what I also call allergies in the context of um, mm. the, you know, the food analogy. right? So we can feed a lot more people if people just didn't have allergies, right? But unfortunately, that's not that's yeah. not real life. And in businesses, I would love to be able to uh, say, I would love to encrypt everything, but that would just break a lot of business processes. I would love to remove administrator rights from developers, but then we're going to have a riot on our hands, right? So there are things that we face as a constraint that someone's going to say, no, we need for you to put AV on the server. And if that server is handling high-speed transactions, you're like, screw you. We're going to lose more money than we would ever lose from getting uh, hacked, right? So this notion of, of constraints, of allergies, of things that uh, impact emission, uh, we want to be able to characterize in the matrix as well to say, this box has certain constraints that we have to deal with. And mm-hmm. if we fail to recognize those constraints, you're going to have somebody break out in, in highs or you know, have some sort of uh, condition fit because yeah. it, it's an allergy that they're having to deal with. And I think the encryption is one of the exact examples of that. So, so you just made me think of something that came up recently, and that's the way you describe it. It's a tough job being a CISO because there are so many different angles, different you know axes that, that you could you could look down. Um, so, in other words, no matter what you do, there's always a way that something happened, regardless of, of what you said. I think that challenge has driven a lot of CISOs to go towards instead of preventing a problem, being able to prove that it wasn't their fault when there's a problem, right? Which means the, well, this person did something and clicked on a fish and all, but look, I told them not to do that. I did secure all the servers and all that, and therefore it's not my fault. And in particular, I see that together with the idea of, well, if there's a breach, the CISOs are, shouldn't be held accountable for it. It's not their fault. Or of course, there always isn't some extreme negligent circumstance or something like that. But the idea that it's, the blame is being cast too quickly and too easily on the CISO. People need to hear them out. And then I, I find that at odds with the, 
we need a seat at the table. We need to be elevated to the rank of a, you know, to the level of a CFO and a GC and be in those board level conversations and strategic conversations. Because to me, those individuals are totally on the hook in a similar way. And if something is misstated on financial statements, it's probably not the CFO, literally, she probably didn't, you know, key in that journal entry. But ultimately, you know, everybody knows she's going to take the fall for that. She's going to bear the headline risk, all of that. And I kind of feel like to be at that table, you do need to recognize that you're on the line and that if something goes wrong, that no one's listening to your excuses or any of that, and that it should be a position of accountability. I, have you thought about that and formed an opinion on it? Yes. So earlier I mentioned the distinction between safety and security. Mm-hmm. We, in security, want to be at the board and have security metrics be shared on a regular basis and so on and so forth. Right. And I think in the grand scheme of things, that's not, the board doesn't care, right, about security. But they absolutely care about safety. And if you go into any uh, manufacturing environment, let's say, and uh, you talk about what's discussed at the board meetings, safety is absolutely a top-line board issue. Okay? But we all continue to frame what we do in cybersecurity as just security, and there's not a safety angle to it. And it turns out there is a safety angle to a lot of other practices. Let's say, for example, accounting, right? So we have generally accepted accounting practices. Mm -hmm. And if you violate those generally acceptable um, accounting practices, then yes, your CFO, your accounting folks are at fault. But if someone actually undermines that system deliberately, maliciously, oftentimes that won't necessarily be caught. Would it be at the accountant's fault to address that? I mean, I think they they should be able to spot it at some point, but to prevent it. You know, to, yeah. to stop it uh, uh, ahead of time, is that something that's that's their fault? And oftentimes I would say, no, no. But it's, Meaning it's not the CFO's fault. It's their fault to catch it. Yeah, it's but, a responsibility to catch it. Yes, yeah. but not necessarily. I mean, there's only so many things they can do to prevent it altogether. So you're saying it's the CISO's fault. <laughs> well, I'm, I'm saying there's, a, there's, there's two angles I want to take here. One is to say we need to frame more of the things that we do in, in cybersecurity as a safety practice, mm-hmm. okay, and that safety practices, here are some basic things that we should all be doing that promote safety within how we operate. But at the same time, there's only so much that we can be held accountable for when something goes wrong, just as much as the CFO, if someone maliciously does something to defraud the organization, yeah. yes, I want you to catch it, but I shouldn't hold the CFO necessarily accountable for that event occurring because really that was out of their control, right? It's in the CISO's control. <laughs> and, it's, and it's not in the CISO's control either. Now, if I if the CISO said, look, look, we at least try to maintain all these good safety practices, and yes, we did catch it, but you can't fault me for I don't think you should be able to fault the CISO for saying, I, I stopped all these things and I none of these bad things ever happened, right? Just as much as a CFO, again, their role, there's a bunch of safety practices that they do as represented through um, the you know, generally accepted accounting practices. Mm-hmm. But when somebody is going to commit fraud, they're going to find a way to commit fraud, right? And I just want to be able to catch it as quickly as possible. That's fair. That's fair. All right, let's talk Twitter a little bit. Let's, <laughs> let's talk much in Twitter. So this news just broke in, over the last uh, week or so. And um, again, to frame the general assumptions for the sake of this conversation, and, and you, you individually can correct me on this one too, 
Uh, so there's this whistleblower complaint to Congress, which was then leaked, and people can read this basically this whistleblower dossier from a ex air quotes head of security. And I'm literally quoting there that that was his title, I believe, who goes by the name of Mudge. It's basically saying I was terminated in January of 22 and people weren't listening and there's a whole lot of security problems here. And it's framed in the, I'm mentioning this because this particular organization is of interest to national security and there's more implications than just um, sour grapes. So that news is broken. A lot of people digested it. A lot of people in our circles, CISOs, ex-CISOs, security commenters have started to weigh in on it. And, and you know, there's a race to weigh in on these things, but we all know we have limited data here, right? So the, the only truth is that we don't know everything yet and we should all be quiet until the details come out, but that's not gonna happen. So with the big qualification that we don't have all of the data and we have no idea and, and we'll only turn out, but so we'll speak almost hypothetically about it. So if you read through the whole report or dossier, as I called it, it makes some accusations about security practices that were negligent at Twitter. And it does it in the light of this is unacceptable um, and this is really bad. There's five major areas. I'm not going to recount them all, but it was things like too much access to data. It said, I think half the company has access to production data. It said there wasn't a development environment. And so. A lot of things that were unpatched, servers unpatched, the endpoints that weren't patched, oh, where there was no uh, updates. Yeah, I had a chance to read these. I had an interesting view into it, um, uh, that whole space, for a couple of reasons. But uh, at the end of the day, when I looked at the criticisms that were brought forth, it made me realize that many of these criticisms are really typical of most modern tech companies. And it made me wonder then, is this the proper view of how security should be done in a modern tech environment. For example, one of the criticisms was just not having a development environment, testing in production. And there's a whole meme on that, right? <laughs> when I test, I test in production, right? So in the modern tech environment, when you're deploying code continuously, it does actually make sense for you to actually just test in production because there are some situations where you just can't replicate the kind of load or the kind of uh, interactions that you have uh, in production you can't do that in a development environment. Yeah. And so the key criteria is, can you roll back quickly, right? Mistakes will happen, but can you roll back quickly so that uh, you can recover from that? And that's pretty normal in modern tech environments. And I, I've had an opportunity being at Bank of America to see how we have, at this point, I would call an antiquated view of how you do security for a slow-moving organization versus a modern tech company where- Born in the cloud. Born in the cloud, where we're deploying many, many, many times a day yep. uh, into production. And yes, I can pull out my hair a number of times for like these issues that come up because people are pushing directly into production. I've seen how quickly we recover because the rollback yeah. is immediate. And, and wouldn't you argue that 99% of the time, the danger in that manifests in an operational manner and not security? Absolutely. Uh, any issues that emerge, <laughs> Well, yeah. I mean, it's possible to have a security go yes. went too fast, but really it's the site's down. That's right. Functionality's broken. That's right. People yeah. can't and, log in. Uh, nine, it, it, you're hedging by saying 99%. I, I would say so far it's been 100%, but yeah. yes, 99.9999% of them are operational issues. And yeah. I would say 99.9999% of those run fine. There is no issue, right? So you have a small, small fraction of uh, things that emerge that are operational. 
and a much, much, much smaller fraction that are actually security relevant. And of course, if it's security relevant, then you do immediate, uh, I mean, there's, it, the, the point so is that the rollback happens that. really fast. Yeah. So this, the point is that in modern tech environments, the type of expectations that we have do change a bit. And in terms of how we do security, let me actually go back to the theme around safety and security again. If you're in a modern tech company, you oftentimes are moving really fast. And consider in a race car, what enables you to actually drive really fast? It's actually not the, it's not the gas pedal. It's the brakes. And if the brakes are really, really good, then you know you can drive super fast towards the wall, hit the brakes, and make that turn. But if you had no brakes, you would not, you, you would not want to drive that fast. Note that brakes are a safety measure, and locks on a car is a security measure. Okay? Locks on a car doesn't help you move fast at all, but brakes do. So the question is, what are the kind of brakes that we have in a modern tech environment that enable a, a company to move really fast. So those brakes aren't necessarily going to be security-oriented, as I mentioned. They're going, they're going to be safety-oriented. So, for example, the rollback. rollback yeah. Can I roll back fast is a safety measure. Then there are things like hygiene, which absolutely matter in terms of just uh, having good, clean code, which helps far more It's on, a quality. Yeah, it's absolutely. A quality issue. Yes. Extends which, far beyond security. For which the business is very, very aligned and very interested in doing it. And if there are things that we do in the broader cybersecurity function that help product quality and hygiene in that fashion, then you get you, you get the business 100% behind you. Aligned motivations. That's right. All about. But if I'm asking the business to clean up every mess that they make on a regular basis over and over again, patch every vulnerability there, whatever, you know, not only will you get... I mean, you'll get ignored for the most part. Um, and at some point, people will just dismiss you. And I think in some respects, I don't know the full story behind what happened on Twitter, beyond what was reported, but there's a degree to which yeah, I can see echoes of someone saying, hey, you got to patch all the things. Or at least, pat- I mean, if half the systems are vulnerable, okay, but how many of them are critical? How many of them are actually in Well, how many of them are exposed? How, yeah, exactly. Exploitable. And so it seems pretty crazy to think half the systems are vulnerable, but if vast majority of them are actually non-exploitable, yeah. you know, negligible sort of issues, then I'm over, I'm over exaggerating the potential. Can abuse the data. Yeah, I'm saying, look, this food preparation area. Look at all the bacteria that has fallen on it, and vast majority of them are things that we don't really care about. Yeah, yeah, I, I think you know the major questions that people are going to be wrestling with are one. Was Twitter negligent about security, right? And, and then two would be, did Mudge comport himself in a good way for a security leader? And I'm leaving that wide open there, right? I, and, and I'm not, you know, venturing to imply anything about either of those questions. I'm just framing them. And so, but on the Twitter bit, you know, and that's that's what people are rushing to judgment about, no doubt. And they're doing it off of the data in that whistleblower write-up. And I would contend that the data in there alone is not enough to reach any conclusions about the security of Twitter. That's right, yeah. Of the four, five complaints, there was only one that, to me, caused some degree of alarm, and that was access to uh, production data and production mm-hmm. systems, which, you know, it's, that is a meaningful, uh, that's a meaningful concern if half the company actually has direct access. 
However, I, I do doubt that that's actually the case, that they have direct access. Now, if they do actually have direct access, yes, that needs to be fixed. Right. The, the, um, the layperson's conclusion when they read that is that exactly half of them, if you take that half population and you walk up to them, that they could figure out everything about a given user on the platform. What did they do? Their entire history, everything they tweeted, everything that they deleted, right. their true identity, their IP address they came in from, right. and that, that, their credit that, card number that they used to People should absolutely have concern if that's the case, because then yes. you have many ways to infiltrate the organization and, and get that from dissidents or whatever else it might be. Yes. I, I suspect, though, uh, I, I think a lot of this is all very nuanced, but I suspect that that sort of access is actually tightly controlled. And if there is access to it, it's done through some sort of review process, through code, through some sort of uh, mechanism that does give you access to production, but is still reviewed. And maybe at least, yeah, has an audit trail. Right. Yeah. And so, again, th these are all nuanced things, and we're taking some presumptions here to, to give. At least I, I try to give, um, <laughs> when you live in a glass house, you try to uh, give people the benefit of the doubt around right. their security posture. because. I am in a modern tech company, and a lot of the complaints that I saw, I'm like, yeah, I, I can I can see why that could be perceived as an issue if I had an antiquated view of how security should be done. When I was at Bank of America, those would have been all like things that would have caused hair on fire. But in a modern tech company, there are things that you should recognize. You know what? These are things that, from a risk management standpoint, we're actually okay to accept. Yeah, and to, to restate what I said earlier about in light of the, the details that you just put out there, from the detail in that report, you cannot tell if that access control was truly a problem. It may have been, it may have not, but there's definitely not enough detail there. And another way to put it, like my take after reading through it was that that report could be levied against almost any organization of size. Right. Down to the data and the EDR coverage and all of that stuff. Yeah. And especially for a tech company, right? Yeah. It's, it's very much, uh, you could take that template and say, you can accuse just about every tech company yeah. out there with that exact same set of accusations. And if you hired a auditor, examiner, reviewer, TPRM, customer, any of the millions of people that are in your shorts as a CISO to review your company, it would be common or at least completely plausible to get that report early on. And if it were factually inaccurate or missing context or anything else like that, you'd begin that process of, of digging into all the details and like, oh, well, we have these mitigating controls. Right. Oh, but we also have this process or, oh, the sample that you got was actually from a legacy system, on and on and on. And some of those things would emerge and be hair on fire problem for sure. But a lot of them we put to bed very early before the report's finalized. That doesn't happen in a whistleblower complaint, does it? Granted, Mudge was there for a couple, I mean, he was there for, I think, two years or something like that to be able to... Uh, assess that, presumably. So I'm sure this, there's some truth to what he's uh, purporting. Is it at the extremes that are uh, documented? I don't know. Um, or more than documented, intimated. Uh, and, yeah, sure, right. And I, I think the other aspect you were kind of hinting at earlier is there is a way to handle this in a way that doesn't create this reaction from other business leaders. Yeah. At the end of the day, the business is trying to operate as efficiently and effectively at the speed that it needs to operate at. And if you have a security person come in and say, oh, no, you got to wipe your table, shoe prep every, every mm -hmm. second, I'm sorry, that's just not going to work. Even if there are some legitimate issues that you see on yeah. that food prep area, that's not the, that, that there's a, there's a uh, understanding of the business and how it operates that needs to be a factor in and say, what really matters and what should I really pay attention to? And how do I discuss that with the senior leaders so that uh, they're on board yeah. about when you have 
chicken and the food prep area, yes, there's a reason why you need to clean the prep area. But if you just have these other materials, it's not Co- that big cost idea. benefit. Yeah. So playing devil's advocate for a moment here, I mean, I, I think you and I would agree based on what we just said and what we discussed and what I've heard from a lot of other people. Generally, at the end of the day, you can resign, right? I mean, there's just general idea where when you're working with execs, you portray your findings and and you know where you'd like to go. And if somebody disagrees, I mean, your job is really to be a diplomat many times and bring mm-hmm. them around and not just to point fingers. Right. But if you really feel like you've exhausted all that and you're trying and people are just not willing to get on board and you feel like there's a headline risk even for you, then you jump ship, especially as a CISO today, right? The employment is really good. Yes. In devil's advocate part of that is one may argue that he's happy to jump ship. He was happy to move on. He can get a paycheck somewhere else all day, but he felt a almost patriotic motivation yeah. because modern society for better or worse is really moving to the beat of Twitter's drum. Yes. Yes. And I think uh, it's very similar to his, uh, he and Sarah building out the, the, uh, Cyrus's wife building out the, the UL labs for cyber. He is a good person that is trying to make a big difference, a dent for society and for internet security and whatnot. So I admire the fact that he is taking this issue and elevating it in a way that um, yeah, may have caused some ruffles. But nonetheless, I think we all recognize the, the national security importance and not just from a global stability standpoint, the importance of something like Twitter. And so him bringing up the issue is something mm-hmm. that I'm sure, again, there's some validity to it. Is it at the extremes that are described? That I don't know, uh, but I, I, I would question that to some degree. But nonetheless, the case is being made, right, that there's some additional attention that needs to be paid to ensure that this resource isn't co-opted for malicious means. And I think that's that's a noble effort. Uh, could there have been better ways or other ways that could have been done? I'm sure. But uh, we are where or, we are. Or that were tried. Who knows? Yeah. yeah. Well, we are where we are. I think at the end of the day, what I'm uh, more concerned about is <laughs> regulators or people coming around saying, wait, you don't have a development environment? You must have a development environment. And again, yeah. my answer to that is no, that's not how that's not how modern tech works today. So please don't take some of these antiquated views and apply that to the modern environment. We do need to change our practices for how we do safety from the past to how we do it in the present. And if we don't adapt those practices, then you will be causing a lot of business impact because they just don't work for Oh, I totally agree. And you just set yourself up for this kind of audit crucifixion. That's right. Yeah. Right. And that's just going to create a lot of noise, unnecessary noise for all of us. Yeah. So Twitter may have, may have an, or now be running an excellent security shop. They may be grossly negligent. There's not enough data in that whistleblower complaint to draw a conclusion in either direction. I think so too. Yeah. And the data will come out at some point, but uh, unfortunately in, in the midst of that, we'll get unfortunately lots of misinformation from Twitter. <laughs> that's a new take on that. All right. Well, it's been great having you on. I really appreciate you dropping in while you're here in Atlanta. Uh, is there anything, you know, given an audience of, of tech execs and CISOs and ex-CISOs coming up or anything like that that you want to share? Yeah, just just to reiterate the very beginning of uh, the conversation around retirement, um, retire multiple times throughout your life. I think you'll find opportunities to reinvent yourself in ways that you hadn't expected. Awesome. Thanks, Anil. Thanks for having me. Well, that does it for this episode. I hope you enjoyed the content and are looking forward to the next one. Thanks for tuning in. Certainly share your feedback and ideas for future episodes.